I want to be remembered trying to leave a legacy, trying to develop the next generation of leaders so that whatever I've learned and developed doesn't die with me. It was passed on. It was able to build up on it. Because there are a lot of legends in the cemetery. The question, and we study in our history books, what was their legacy? Legacy is passed on through the hearts and minds of others that you take the time to coach, mentor, and train. And they build upon what you have coached, mentor, and trained them so they can pass it on to the next generation. That's what I want to be remembered for. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Major General Dr. Elder Granger is a board-certified hematologist-oncologist and served as the Program Executive Officer of the TRICARE Management Activity, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. He also led the largest U.S. and multinational battlefield health system in our recent history while serving as Commander, Task Force 44th Medical Command, and Command Surgeon for the Multinational Corps Iraq. He is currently the president and CEO of the Five P's, a healthcare education and leadership consulting organization. In this episode, you'll hear some remarkable stories from Dr. Granger's vast experience coordinating medical support for an entire theater of war and how he facilitated the introduction of new medical technology on the battlefield. He also describes behind the scenes decisions associated with executing a 20 plus billion dollar budget for the defense health plan. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General, Dr. Elder Granger to Wardocs. Elder, thanks for joining us today. My honor. You began your career as a combat medic with the Arkansas National Guard and then attended Arkansas State University on ROT scholarship. What led you to pursue Army medicine? Well, first of all, having cousins and family and you know, distant families and friends where I grew up in Westminster, Arkansas, being the military, I always saw a transformation. When, when people went into the military, they left one away and they would come back home after their initial training. They came back almost like a transformed individual. And I saw it as a means being able to do something similar, but also I saw it as a means of getting some education, being from a large family, a family of 12, eight of us still living. My parents, both eighth grade education, couldn't really afford it. So I saw it as a means of getting some training, some education, and eventually going to college or medical school. And by the way, I joined during the end of Vietnam, so I knew it was a risk, even just joining the National Guard, but it was a risk worth taking, in my humble opinion. So after you graduated from college, you went to medical school at University of Arkansas and trained to become an internal medicine physician and subspecializing in hematology oncology. How did you choose that particular medical training pathway? And why does the military have hematologists, oncologists on active duty? Well, two reasons. I decided to become a hematologist oncologist because a lady by the name of Sarah Eaton, my hometown, Westminster, Arkansas. She was a kindergarten uh, teacher, but being of African-American descent, she was a white female. And I was working at a grocery store. And she loved the way I sacked up grocery, putting all the fruits and vegetables and the canned goods in one and the meats in another. So she would always get in my line. And one day, it was a hot day. She, she walked outside and she said that, but you plan to sack grocery your entire life? I said, no, ma'am. Uh, I'm in the National Guard. I plan to one day to either be an Army nurse or physician assistant. She said, well, you should pursue that. So she became influential in my life. And when I was an intern at Fitzsimmons Army Medical Center in Aurora, Colorado, her doctor was Dr. Denicky, local family practitioner. And he had been a mentor of mine. And he informed me through the American Red Cross. They contacted me and said, no, he's not the next of kin, nor is he a family member. But he needs to be notified that a lady who has might influence his life is dying of gallbladder cancer. And I was an intern at that point at Fitzsimmons. And I was, of all things, to be honest with you, I was rotating on the hematology oncology service. And that sort of was the, the catalyst wanted me to go into hematology oncology and try to do something in treatment or research or some form of discovery. Now, the second question, why do we have hematology oncologists? For two reasons. Number one, uh, hematology oncologists first are trained as good internists. And then from a military standpoint, our, our MOS is internists. Then we have a secondary MOS, hematology oncology, 
But also, too, in any war, there's the possibility of having nuclear, chemical, or biological. Well, hematologists and colleagues give drugs that affects the body, just like a chemical in a chemical warfare. There is that need for having a hematologist and colleagues to help out with chemical injuries because we understand the bone marrow and the bone marrow system. Then also, too, there is a need to having good internists to serve in the military. And then from a training perspective, uh, graduate medical education, in order to have a certified program in order to train other doctors in internal medicine, internal medicine specialties, you have to have a hematology oncology program or having access to hematologists and colleges. That's the rationale. So when you finished your fellowship in, in HEMOC, do you recall any significant cases that were memorable to you early on in your career that shaped what you did in the future or gave you some lessons learned? Yes, I do. You know what really got my it really sort of shaped what I did then and what I do now. It was at that point after doing my fellowship, and also when I finished my fellowship, we started seeing all these large cases of lung cancers. And I said, why so? Well, doing early on in our military, we had these military little meals we called sea rations. They were about World War I, World War II, and the Korean conflict in Vietnam. They would put cigarettes in there. And it was fanciful. They said, when I went through basic training or advanced individual training, they said, they'd always say during the break, light them up if you got them. If you're not, ask a buddy. So smoking was very fashionable. And as a offshoot of development of encouraging smoking in the military, I took care of a lot of patients during my fellowship with lung cancer, number one. And number two, I took care of this very young population with a disease called Hodgkin's disease. I thought I saw a few cases when I was in medical school, but I saw a lot of them during my fellowship because of the disease of the young. So it was those type of cases and individual cases that encouraged me to want to do what I'm doing. And I'll tell you this one story. There was this one young lady. She had leukemia. She had chronic myelogenous leukemia. Usually somebody's very young, unusual case. I was able to help her get a bone marrow and that's bone marrow transplantation. And I thought I'd never see her again. We sent up to Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center up in Seattle. And later on in my career, I was commanding Lundstu Regional Medical Center, Lundstu, Germany. And I was on the national and international news because I was a commander doing the attack of the USS Cole off the coast of Yemen. And I was on the media. Later on that night, my secretary said, well, this young lady called, said that you took care of her Oh, about at that point, almost 15, 20 years ago, and she went to make sure that the same young captain, Dr. Granger, who's now Colonel Granger, took care of her. And she said, can you call her? And she said, you'll probably think she shouldn't be alive, but she's alive. So I took the number and I called and I saw the name. I said, oh, my God, I do remember this case. So those were cases like that that encouraged me. And I had one other case. When I was a fellow at Simmons, Doug, I had a white soldier. He had a splenic infarct. And I said, wow, we thought it was some type of lymphoma. So what happened is that I said to myself, I'm going to do a hemoglobin antiphoresis. Look for a hemoglobinopathy. And my attendant said, oh, that's a red herring. Yeah, well, you should look at this. I said, we looked up everything. It's not lymphoma. So he was high altitude for Carson. They said it could be for that. But if for that, it must have some type of hemoglobinopathy. Turned out the kid had sickle cell trait. And we started asking this question, but he was of Mediterranean descent. That was another fascinating case. And the third case was a, this one I was an internal medicine resident on. This kid had been evaluated for chronic headaches, just chronic headaches. So I was on neurology and he said, well, wake him up. He's been worked up by everybody. The only thing he had not had performed as a diagnostic procedure in the past was a angiogram or arteriogram. So Dr. Rudy Tobner was the actual staff. I said, well, sir, can I do a, an arteriogram? He has chronic headaches. He's had everything, all types of tests, etc. He's not in bad luck. There's vasotura. So happened, we did it. Late on a Friday, the radiologist resident called and said, Elvin, you got to come see this. This kid have large vessels leaving from his carotids, but when they go into the brain, they're very small and fine. And he said, this is a case of moya-moya disease. 
very rare case where there's a, a uh, from birth, there's an abnormality where you don't develop the complete vasculature of your circle of Willis and everything else. We have these small, fine blood vessels that still supply blood to the brain. But over time, you started developing chronic headaches. There was just a few cases there that I enjoyed doing my training, both as a resident and as a fellow. It's always nice to, to get that confirmation 15 years later, even that the treatment that you helped provide somebody made a difference and they remembered that care. So that's a, that's a great story. You mentioned your command and you were commander both at Ireland Army Hospital at Fort Knox and at Launchstool prior to 9-11. And you mentioned the coal incident. How was that command experience before 9-11? And what were some of the experiences that, that you remember from those days? One thing I learned in my first command at Harlem Army Community Hospital at Fort Knox, coming out of Army War College, and I'm very fortunate to be one of five physicians in all the Army go to Army War College. But I was told by Major General Lester Berger, we call him Les Berger, and General Blank saying, hey, Elder, congratulations. War College, you've been, select, you've been selected for a command, and we'll decide on which command. I was told that while I was at the War College. Then later on, I got notified it was our learning community hospital. And I said, okay. Why well, of all places, I said that you know, I spent some time in Germany as a young hematologist oncologist. Why not send me back to Germany? And General Berger said that, Elder, this is a hospital that is on the verge of being downsized to a clinic. However, the two-star commander, Major General George Hermeyer, have said, we will not close this hospital because this is the home of of armor training. A lot of danger training goes on here. We need to have our own hospital. Senator Mitch McConnell, I had the chance to go to Washington, D.C. and have a two-minute meeting with him. And he said that, well, Colonel, welcome to Kentucky. Colonel, make sure you get that new insurance plan y'all call track up and working. And the third thing, he said, don't close my damn hospital. Welcome to Kentucky. Anything else? No, no sir. sir. Have a great day. You can head back to Kentucky. By the way, go tell those guys at Pentagon what I said. But it was the, out of the top 35 hospital, they were talking about downsizing when the military healthcare system, it was the number one inefficient hospital. Average length of stay in terms of cost was off the roof for an average cost for an outpatient visit. I don't care if you're doing all the readiness costs, it was just bad. So I, after the change of command, I said to General Berg, I said that, or, sir, uh, are you saying I need to look at downsizing? And the two stars saying, don't close it. Senator Mitch McConnell said, don't close it. And you know, my sergeant major, he pulled me aside and said, sir, what's missing? He had been there for about six months. What's missing? The military and civilians are not aware of how bad this hospital is because everybody has not been willing to share. No one has had the courage to share with them the good, the bad, and the ugly, how bad we are. So what I did as a new commander, we meet with the staff and met per shift being a hospital, and I asked the chief of staff, the DCA, Deputy Command of Administration, put together me a slide on where we rank. I want them to show them the data, everything, right across the board. So no more than 10 or 15 slides. So what I did at my first commander's call, I spent about 30 minutes talking about this notional hospital, where it ranks and everything else. And then I asked a question. I said, well, what do you think about this hospital? They said, Colonel Granger. That's terrible. That's terrible. That place doesn't stand to be open. It should be closed. So after they asked all the questions, well, what recommendation do you have for us to turn around this hospital? And I had, you know, people scribing. I said, we're going to take down your suggestions. And after I got about 20 suggestions, I said, okay, I'll stop at this point. And let me reveal who is this hospital and where is it located? I said, that's us. That's our alarming community hospital here at Fort Knox. I say us because I'm part of it now. And I'm going to take your suggestions, and we're going to seek them implement it and turn it around. And I will tell you, Doug, after about six months, we started moving in the right direction. And after about a year, we went from being the number one worst. We we're getting close to the bottom and being good. But still, at that point, that was not enough. I had to do a reduction in force, riff, as we call it. But I was able to do it in such a way that I only had to decrease the, the civilian staff by about 50. And of that 50, more than three-fourths was offered early retirement. 
and remain that we had to do the rack and stack who had so much time and rank in terms of grade and from a civilian standpoint. But we turned that hospital around. The whole team, my sergeant major, the staff, the DCA, all, all the nurses, we all got together. And out of that, I developed what I call my command philosophy for the rest of my command and leadership. I call it the five Ps. The first P being people. Always listen and take care of the people to get their input. The second P being process. Learn what processes that you can support that can make you successful. What process ought to be changed or completely eliminated? The third P is prevention. How can you put in processes and procedures around people to prevent things from happening? Or if, if they're going to happen, have a plan in place to sort of mitigate it. The fourth P is called productivity. How you empower people to be what I call E2, more efficient and effective, which equal to productivity from their standpoint. And then what I learned in productivity, share the success and the rewards of the system with those who are doing the work. Let me explain what I'm talking about. We always had what is called third-party collection in our military hospitals. But for the first time, I went to the, my chief of resource management and said, what? It might not be enough money, but I want to share with each department chief and their team, layout, x-ray, nursing, whatever we get back in third-party. We're going to share with them. They can't use it to buy people. They can use it to buy things. Go TDY for continuum education. Go do some training or buy some equipment or buy something they, that they can take pride in. And that was very successful. The last P is price. That's the price, the sacrifice both military and civilian and their family make to defend and support this nation both home and abroad. But also, there's the price of running a healthcare system. Dollars. We entrusted with a lot of money. As taxpayers, we have to make sure we use that in the most efficient, effective way. This is the five Ps in the shape of a Pentagon. At the bottom of the Pentagon or base, whatever you need to make sure it has value and is relevant. might have value, but it's not relevant. Or it's relevant, but it has no value. So you don't have to separate those two. And as inside of that, I talk about quality, access, satisfaction, accessibility, utilization management, risk management. I learned to take that through my entire career. So you took that, and I'm not going to do a spoiler alert, but you're currently the president and CEO of the Five Ps, the company that you started, uh, healthcare education and leadership consulting. So it sounds right. like you you laid that groundwork at your first command. I laid the first command and a second command when I ran did it on the battlefield in Iraq, and when I ran Tricare as well as in my civilian life. I still use that. Tell us a little bit about the experience at LaunchDuel. Uh, you mentioned the, the coal incident. Was that your, your biggest leadership challenge while you were there? What was the hardest thing for you? That was the biggest leadership challenge because for LaunchDuel, at that point, I was the third commander where they had a combination of Army and Air Force. General Cowley was the first to except that hybrid, both the Army Surgeon General and Air Force Surgeon General agreed that there was a Air Force medical group located at Ramstein. Um, they had all the staff, but they need to maintain their, their day-to-day skills. So they took this squadron and embedded inside a lunch to about 300 Air Force personnel. Then there was Bob Harvey. He came along. He was the second man. I was the third commander. There was always this tug of war that the Air Force said, well, we're not allowed to be any. So we can't be a department chief. We can't be a service chief. All we got to be Air Force. And General Peake at that time was the Army Surgeon General. I said, General Peake, I've got to get some equity for Air Force. So I bit the bullet. I said, well, sir, I have a Deputy Commander of Clinical Service DCCS slot coming open. I would like to look at Army and Air Force and select the best and most qualified person between Army and Air Force candidate. He was a little hesitant, but at the same time, he was supportive. He said, as long as they understand they have spent some time in an Army organization, understanding the Army coaches, officer, OER, officer evaluation, reporting systems. And, and then so happened, the chief of professional service at the 86th group over at Ramstein was uh, Colonel, Air Force Colonel Jim Rondell who had been in charge of the joint training program at Walter Reed, Army and Air Force 
psychiatry program. So he interviewed, I had a couple of the Army guys interview, but Tim Rundell was best of the best of all of them. So for the first time, I accepted an Air Force doctor or colonel to be the deputy commander for clinical service at Longstreet. It had happened at Tripler where they had a Navy guy, but never anywhere in Europe, any of our stateside uh, hospitals. And to be honest with you, it's the best thing we could have done as a command because he was excellent. He was an expert in hostage, mental health of hostages, POWs. He was an expert in that. And also, he was a very soothing and calming leader and very respected both the Army and Air Force uh, clinical staff. So that was a challenge that I had to go through. I mean, I got some criticism from my Army buddies. Oh, they been giving away the Army as a key developmental slot. I said, well, look, it's the right thing to do. So that was challenge number one. And then the second challenge was selecting certain Air Force individuals to be different chiefs of services or department. We got past that. We used the same. And by the way, I made sure they all went through training on how to write the evaluation reports for the Air Force as well as for the Army. Formalized training. I took the personnel from both the Air Force personnel person of the group as well as our Army chief of personnel. It was mandatory. You couldn't rate nobody on the Army or Air Force without going through the formalized training. And then if any report card left the organization, it had to be reviewed by the senior Air Force person on the Launchton staff and our, our chief of personnel and myself and others on the Army side. So it was, it was a win-win. The other challenge was setting up a command operations center because we were constantly getting these unusual casualties or situation happening in Africa or somewhere in the Middle East. I said, we need to stand up an operations center. So the DCA, Sammy Franco, retired colonel, and we'd got some funding, set up an operations center within our training ward. We had a waterfall training, simulation training. So what happened, Regular General Richard Arson was the European Region of Medical Command one-star, MSC, great friend and mentor. We were up there doing our quarterly brief, and I told him, I said, Chief of Staff Sammy Franco is not going to be here. He's, t- he's doing an exercise at the operations center. But then a matter of me doing my, I'm up there briefing my quarterly update, how well we're doing it. And I got a call and he said, General Rasson and Colonel Green, you need to step out for a minute. There's a hot call there from Sammy Tranko. He said, hey, boss, we've just been notified. We're going to be getting about 20 casualties or close to 40 from the USS Cole off the coast of Yemen. It was attacked by a group of terrorists. And we're not sure they're coming late tonight or early tomorrow morning. So General Son and I both got, got in my vehicle. He got in his vehicle. He came straight up to Lundstrom from Heidelberg. And we were up all night because there was cloudy weather coming in Germany. Wasn't sure they're going to land at Ramstein or our next base about an hour away, Bitburg, Spangdalen. And we had the, the Navy European Command Surgeon, Tom Burkholm. He came over from London, that's where they were headquartered, and had to use safety, U.S. Air Force Europe, and myself, the commander, and we had all the European Command public affairs officers, uh, the uh, four-star sending down staff, European, everybody sending staff to help us out. And thank God General Song came there. He said, hey, look, we'll take all the support, but we got to get it filtered because he didn't want to make sure we didn't get overwhelmed. And plus two... An education and training center, we turned it into a actual media room. So General Son and I literally slept in my office. My wife uh, brought over some blankets and brought over some food. We slept about a couple of hours. And about 5 a.m. the next morning, we got word that but they'll probably be landing at Ramstein. But it was still cloudy. As would be the USAFE chaplain, the Lonstone chaplain, they were all there. They went to the chapel and they said a prayer. And Doug, you have to see this to believe it. About an hour to 45 minutes over the land at Spangdalem, about an hour away, we had buses to go pick up the casualties. The sun started, clouds dissipated, and they diverted the flight to Ramstein. So we had buses going, buses in both locations. We got all the casualties, put them on the bus, brought them over to uh, Lonstu. Klaus went back in. <laughs> it, was, it was a divine miracle to see. And I told the chaplain, I said, God answered your prayers. But we were busy. 
they were busy sorting them out, doing all the triaging, and I was being prepared. And Jim Rundell was managing a lot of it as Air Force, but I was getting ready for my first international news brief. We had close to 200 media got permission to come in. We put them over the education center. And my first time getting exposed to CNN, a guy named Chris Burns, he was CNN Europe. Diane Sawyer was going to interview me that, that next morning on Good Morning America. And I had to rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. I had to rehearse to the guys back in the Pentagon, had to rehearse to the European Command, had to rehearse to U.S. Army Europe. And I did updates every 12 hours to the media. Then what I did, I said, I want the chief of staff, Franco. I want Jim Rundell. I'll say a few words and I started letting them do some updates so they get the experience too. And people said, well, I said, they have seen my, my talking head in my face. I was getting all types of kudos back in the Pentagon. General Peaks and all good. You seem so relaxed. I said, well, I had media training at the Army War College. And I said, I'd say my prayer and just, just answer the question. But you always want to acknowledge the families, those who lost loved ones, those who injured. We had FBI, CIA, everybody there collecting stuff. I would say the three most challenging, selecting a Air Force DCCS. Number two, making sure there's equity or parity among the Department of Service Chief. And number three, it was an honor to be there to take care of. It was going to happen to take care of the, the injured sailors in the USS Cole, getting all the support from up and down the DOD food chain. So when 9-11 hit, you had finished your command at Launch Tool and you were serving as the Chief of Health Policy Services. And one of the key responsibilities of that is to support the Surgeon General with Title X responsibilities. And that's really recruit, organize, train, and equip the force. 9-11 happens. How did that change everything? Well, let me tell you, I got notified. I just got to General Pete came over. He had been selected to be the Surgeon General. And he came to Heidelberg. I was scheduled to go to Heidelberg to be General Song, Deputy Commander and Chief of Clinical Staff. And General Pete came over, my wife and I, we all went to dinner with him. General Pete did something that was unique. He was sitting with General Stone and I. He goes down and sits on the other side of my wife. He tells somebody, well, move over here. I want to sit next to Brenda, my wife. So they kept having a conversation, going back and forth, just laughing. She was saying, I would have a sister who lives in Woodbridge, Virginia, blah, 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 blah. I've never been near my sister's known in my career. So later on, he started to generate something. He said, well, Elvis, I'm going to work for me. And I said, he said, what? He said, well, your wife said it's fine. She's never been around a family. So General Pekin and my wife had already cut a deal. That I was going to be leaving Launch to instead of going to Heidelberg. I was going to come work for him at the certain general's office. We reported to D.C. in mid-August. He said, General Pekin said, well, get settled. Get everything settled, get a place on Fort Belvoir, should get housing. And it just got announced I need to break it to general list. So I got settled in. We found a place to, we couldn't get on Fort Belvoir. We rented a place right there in the Fairfax station. So I started my first day of work, 9 11. Wow. That was the day I showed up for my first meeting. We went in the update, briefing General Peak. He goes to the Pentagon, to the balcony brief. With General, General Sinseki was chief staff of the Army. So, but we hear this southern roar come over Skyline, right down Leesburg Park. Boom! This big puff of smoke. Everybody going to the window. And I will tell you, Doug, I was scared to take They had a bus that goes around D.C. from different Pentagon over the Skyline, different federal buildings. I was scared to catch the bus with this nurse, you know, and take me, get, get, show me around the Pentagon and get my uh, Pentagon badge and all that stuff. What so happened, we were running late, and I missed that bus. And my secretary said, don't worry, they come every 15 minutes. Well, I would have probably been in the same location because we were scheduled to go and do a briefing that morning. So after that, I never got a Pentagon staff orientation. I got my Pentagon, got the badge, getting out of the Pentagon, a cat card. But we were busy. And my main job at that time was helping General Peak mobilize the reserves as well as get volunteers and get the active duty ready to go. We were busy. We were doing at a minimum 16, 18 hour plus hours a day. John Alvarez was my executive officer. We literally would just be in office, have some time 
knocking out office and just passing out there, just passing out the place to get some sleep. I'd go home and you know change clothes, get a bite to eat, or try to get a little sleep and come back. But I was there for eleven months. It was a good learning for me too, as well, because General Peake said the reason he want me to bring me to DC. He said you've done well in all your assignments. You need to learn how to big arm and how government works. And, and I will tell you, I got a chance to represent him along with Bill Thrasher, you know, Bill Bester, General Scully, and a whole other active duty, I mean, reserve generals reactivated to see how the system works. And he taught me a lot. He really did. General Peake is a great leader. He's, he's always been a hard taskmaster. But if you listen to him, ignore all the hard work he asked you to do. He's only asking you to do it for the soldiers and their family. Never ask anybody to do anything for him. So he's got you connected with that experience of, of how it works. And then he sends you back to Europe to be the to European regional medical commander. That's right, right when OEF is is going on and OIF is about ready to start. Right. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I was the European Regional Medical Commander. I was also the United States States Army Europe surgeon. So my job, I had had three jobs. They had TRICARE Europe. That was my Pentagon job for Dr. Lincoln. I had the Army Medical Department job, the Regional Medical Commander. Then I had the United States Army Europe job as a command surgeon. We were pushing out the Fifth Corps and all the subordinate units, 30th Met Brigade, Don Gagliano was the commander. We have to make sure that not only were they equipped, we have to make sure that all their immunizations were documented. So for the first time, General Peake said, I want you to deploy and use the medical protective system called MedPro. He said, I know I've asked folks to use it, they're not using it. So what we did with our active duty PAs, medics, doctors, nurses, and contractors, we took all the paper records in your immunization of yellow booklet. We made sure all that got uploaded into the medical protective system called MedPros. And to be honest with you, Doug, it worked so well that General B.B. Bell, the four-star, said, you know what? I want to present this at the four-star conference. Give me a few slides. I gave him his own account. He became a big supporter. All the division commanders on board, all the surgeons. So when they got ready to go out in terms of going into Iraq and Afghanistan and other places, but seeing more forces. They were probably the most medically, dental, immunization, operating search ready unit in all of the Army because we had documented it. That was a great experience that if you get leadership involved and train them on the value of this and how important it is, when they get ready to go, they're only doing those unique immunizations they need for that part of the world, ready to go. And my big mantra was that the equipment might be ready, but it's a human body that's not ready, the equipment will not work. But you need ready human bodies, a medically ready force that's going to support it. You need a ready force in order to go do that. So I was on, they have an arm radio, they have a called Armed Forces Network called AFN. I did a lot of speaking on the importance of the flu vaccine for that to do it in their families and contracts and civilians. We had the highest stats. The United States Army Europe, 60,000 plus soldiers, not including their family members and others. It was 97%. General Bell said, oh, that what 100%. So we got 99 point something. I said, General Bell, a lot of these folks in AIT, we have no control. That they're in training. And plus two, we were implementing TRICARE remote for those individuals at the embassies around the world, helping set up networks of local providers as close to the American quality and standard of care. That was another job. And guess what? I got to be my executive director, run TRICARE with me, Air Force Colonel James Rondell. He had validated his ability. They said, it's the Air Force spot. I said, I want Colonel Rondell. So, so Europe then found itself as the, the regional hub for the casualties coming from the war zone. How was that in preparing Launchdool? Well, you'd been at Launchdool as the commander. How were they able to transform their mission from peacetime to really being the center of the universe for casualty evacuation. We were very fortunate. I had uh, Colonel Ron McCormick and uh, Dave Rubenstein as the commanders. And then we had set it up so that Army and Air Force, we brought a Navy contingency to be prepared to receive casualties. We had uh, a liaison officer from Marines, Air Force, 
Navy and the Army, if there were a large concentration of units there, they had a liaison at Monstu. And we put up these little, almost like pop-up blow uh, containers. We turned them to offices. We had all types of things to receive them. Plus, we put in a very nice triage system, communication all the way to the battlefield. What was going on? There was a system called Joint Patient Tracking System. So we had visibility what was coming from the theater and also in terms of in route care. They had documentation. So when they came to Lundstedt, we had pretty good documentation we were going to be receiving using the Joint Patient Tracking System. And, the, and we called it TRACES, this system developed by the Air Force. We had a pretty good idea through the our medical evacuation system. We utilized all the technology and system we had available, and we, we developed some, too, during that time. But it became the hub for um, the next phase. It expanded. We had reserves there. We were constantly learning lessons on how to improve the process. It was also during that time we started a joint trauma registry by Colonel Retired John Holcomb. He was involved in that process. The only thing that was not working well, Doug, was a lot of the documentation on the battlefield was still paper-based. It was in, in spite of us having a system, there was a big push still use paper. So after that, General Peak saw how well we were using electronic means. So at that time, I was commander. I was down in Grafenbeer. I had a congressional delegation. We were trying to get some money to build a new clinic. General Peak said, look, I know you're busy, but I want you and bring your wife along with you to spend time with this congressional delegation because we want to get that 11 million out of here. Building new clinics in Graffinville. So Sarah Young, I never forget her. She came over. She's working for Congressman Young, no relationship. And she said, I want to go see, I want to go to Italy. I want to go to Graffville. I want to go here. I want to see why you need this. So we took her around in Air Force, uh, military, or uh, flight, everywhere. Then the last few days, we came back and we did the Germany tour and went to Graffinville. And I was showing them something about the clinic. And they said, well, General Pete, I want to talk to you. I'll leave and go into the clinic office. He said, hey, look, when you finish the tour, uh, make sure you get the money. I said, yes, sir. He said, give me a call and I'd have another mission for you. So this, this is April, my second year being, this is April of uh, 2004. So uh, I said, what? He said, well, this, I got a mission. I said, well, sir, can you tell me? He said, well, it's at Fort Bragg. So call me tonight. So later on, I called him and gave him the update about Sarah Young. So she was going to support the 11 million for the new clinic. He said, well, I want you to go to Fort Bragg. What do you want me to do? He said, I want you to take the Fort Medical Command to Iraq. I said, sir, I'm, I'm not airborne. Or, I, guess I don't care about that. He said that I want you to come to the, the AMED meeting that you just put on in San Antonio. I want you to meet Lieutenant General J.R. Vines. And he said, your good buddy, George Waitman, we introduced you. Because I want you to take that and go to Iraq. And I want Joyce to come work for me at the Surgeon General's office. So I would tell you, Doug, I said, Boy, this is very uncomfortable. I'm going to the, the only airborne medical command has a leg to get prepared to go be the 18 airborne core surgeon and take the unit to Iraq. So uh, he and I spoke. We went on. And he said, tell you what. He said, do me a favor. He said, you know General um, Becton? I said, yes, sir. I know General Becton. He said, give him a call and ask him about when he was a brigade commander for the one of the brigades in the 101st air assault, not being air assault. And I was one of his lieutenants. So I called General Beckley. He said, General Pete want me to call. He said, he said, I know why. He said, because you're being asked to do something you feel very uncomfortable. I said, yes, sir. And he said, now, Jim Pete called me. And he said, well, Jim Pete was one of my lieutenants when I was a colonel in Vietnam. And I was, I was the first and only colonel to be in charge of an air assault brigade, not being air assault. He wants you to go run and be in charge of a medical brigade that is uh, airborne. You're not airborne, and you're feeling terrible. I said, yes, sir. He said, get over it. He said, they need your skills, your leadership skills. Were, were you tempted at all to go to airborne school? Has a general officer ever gone to airborne school? Yes, General Rumbaugh. They would allow you to go do it, but if they, it was a little mini course. But after General Rumbaugh went and he crashed, and he ended up lacerating his liver and died. He said he was just injured, but he had a pretty significant bleeding of his liver. And he died. They they eliminated that. Yeah, no more. No more flag officers going. So I was tempted to do it. Like I said, nope, that program is gone. 
I can't do it. Not even a minute goes. So you get to Fort Bragg, you take over the 44th Medical Command. And in November of 2004, you find yourself taking them to Iraq and you're the commander of Task Force 44th Med Command in Iraq. Tell us a little bit about what was going on in your mind and what was the biggest challenge for that unit in supporting the warfighters? I would tell you the, the first thing is uh, George Waitman did a great job. General Bynes, he said, first of all, he said, I'm selecting Coach Jim Peake, so you're a good leader and it's most important. I need somebody to, know how to take care of soldiers. So I got past it. Then I had a sergeant major that said, hey, sir, the fact you're coming as a leg to command this, your, your respect is going up overnight. <laughs> he said, because if they didn't think you'd do it, they wouldn't bring you to Fort Bragg. And that was my first assignment to Fort Bragg. My biggest challenge was, I'll give you, first of all, the 44th would routinely just, they would wait till they get ready to go, then they got ready. I was not trained that way. So I said, we're going to have about close to 40% plus of reserve and National Guard. So I said, I want for us to pay for it. When all, all their leadership, their main leadership staff, to come to Fort Bragg. I want to do an exercise, get to know each other. And then I want to make sure at that point, General Peake asked me to deploy for the first time the electronic health care record on the battlefield called MC4. So I said, okay, first, I know why he wanted me to go because they did the same thing a year for me to go and put this electronic health care record on the battlefield, put in a trauma system and document the health care electronically. So I made sure the first challenge was getting everybody trained, including myself. The team came down from, from Fort Dietrich, who was in charge of MC4, uh, number one. They trained me. There were several NCOs who had already been trained on it. I made sure, Doug, that I became an expert on that system. And you know what I'm talking about? I knew that system front and back. I could even give the brief, and I did a few times. And then the other challenge was making sure all the commanders were trained on it. Whether they were a doctor, nurses, MSC, whatever it might be, a dental, I want to be trained just to know the basics. That was challenge number one. We got past that. The second challenge was the fact that getting all of us to get medically ready and making sure the units is going to support us are medically ready it was documented in the Medical Protective System Med Pros. And I had to get my own staff to understand this because there's a mindset Fort Bragg, you train and you take care of it when you get there. I couldn't let that happen. So there was some resistance, but people came around and they saw what I was trying to do and accept it. And the third was trying to prevent all these reserved, well-renowned physicians who were coming in from bringing their own toys and tombs instead of using what we had already there. And what I did, I brought an Army, Air Force, and Navy trauma surgeon, Dr. Daniel Arabic, Dr. J, as we call it, Don Jenkins, U.S. Air Force, and John DeNoble. Navy captain. And their job was to put in a American College surgeon, the ABCs of trauma on the battlefield. As we had the, I asked a good friend of mine who trained with me, Jim Eklund. We trained together at Fitzsimmons years ago. He's a neurosurgeon. He called and asked, could he go to be head of my neurosurgical team? I said, Jim, I'd love for you to go with me. We served to get on lunch too out of our training at Fitzsimmons. So Jim and, and the other team and, and because General Pete said I could hand select key staff, I brought what is called, these are called SAM guys. These are very strategic guys. General Peak had trained about four of them. They were not being utilized. So I said, General Peak, I want them all. These strategic thinkers, battlefield planners, so I brought them all with me. But the challenge was once we got to get them to utilize the MC4. So what I did, I went to the command of 86 cash, Casper Jones, his DCH, Jerome Penner, and his chief nurse. And I got them to embrace it along with their DCCS. So they became the model hospital for helping us put in the MC4 system. Dave Paramore, who was my CIO major, and we, I brought in two guys who just retired at Fort Bragg who've been trained on it. I brought them in as contractors. They were NCOs. I said, what are you doing? I said, sir, we've been training on this system. We trained the first team to go in eight and you lives. We want to go. So I got a contract. I brought them with me. We did an assessment, all the equipment on the battlefield, because I told the reservists, let's assess what we have right now. There's something that's going to put you at a disadvantage. I put in consultants, general surgery, vascular surgery, neural surgery, trauma, head consultants. And they had to get together and come up with what they call the standardization of equipment. So when anybody came in the battlefield, they did standardization. 
Maybe we put in tele, telehealth, telebehavior health, telepathology, teleradiology, overcome that stress control team. The most important thing I think we did, Doug, when we were there, we took all the AMS Southern School. And at that time, George Wakeman was in charge of the Army Southern School. I said, send me on CDs all the outdated PAMs that people kept saying were outdated. I'm going to take all our specialists, going to be logistics, you name it, nursing, operators, dental. I want them to update their own FMs, read it and update it and say, this is, this is unrealistic. This is what we're doing now. They updated all those, sent them back to uh, General Waitman, and I got a chance to see the updated PAMs when they came out about four years ago. That was something that we're all are very proud of. I got every specialist. I got the patient administration guys update their section. But it took a while to get it through, but it came out because we were living off we were living off desert shear, desert storm, and Vietnam scenarios and all these PAMs, field manuals. And now one of your hats while you were there was also the surgeon for the multinational core Iraq. Right. And sometimes once clinical cases get on the radar of the command level, they're pretty significant. Were there any clinical cases that stand out to you that were either incredible or just, wow, this is unbelievable? I will tell you, there was a there was a young man. And by the way, John Holcomb brought in his uh, joint trauma registry team, along with two or three nurses, allowed them to come in and start documenting the trauma. There was this young active duty soldier. He was severely injured. And I recall he's at the 86. Time we calculated up the amount of blood, he got over almost close to 30, 40, 50 different types of units, all types of components. And I was a hematologist and said, hey, sir, what do y'all do? I said, look, we've given him some of everything, playlists. We've given him fresh frozen plasma. We've given him red cells. We've given him everything. So I said, and I spoke to John Hope. He was there. He said, hey, sir, this is where we go to whole blood. I said, well, John, I was thinking the same thing. We started giving him whole blood. Because they needed all the components. So we started asking units to come in and donate and all that stuff like that. But we start using massive trauma. We try to get our components, but give whole blood. It contains all the components. We were able to save that kid. Because we were just giving every, all the components, giving it to him. He needed more. So instead of trying to get more fresh frozen plasma for a platelet, getting whole blood and we turn it around. That, that was a fascinating case. The other thing that took place was there was this organization was commissioned, they asked permission to do an HBO special on true trauma on the battlefield. And it's called Downtown New York TV. And they filmed the entire process and it turned into an HBO special called Baghdad ER. They ended up winning an Emmy, but it documented a lot of things. There was a lot of lessons learned just from that alone, just documenting that. But one of the highlights was having the Iraqi Surgeon General in that job, multinational corps Iraq hat help him stand up his own medical force, establishing a school at one of the camps there, taking his doctors and finally accepting nurses because accepting nurses is not something to do in their culture. We had to get them to accept nurses, help them stand up their own medical force and help them be equipped and help them get promoted from a colonel to a brigadier and to two-star before we left. That was General Hassan Samir. And the last thing was getting everything documented electronically from the battlefield. So from the time we got there in November, they started seeing data flowing in April of 2005. For the first time, we could see clinical data going from the clinical system into the clinical data repository that all the healthcare records go in, all the way back to the VA. We were documenting and care on the battlefield. And now it's history. We can't go to the battlefield unless you do it. So, so I'm sensing a theme here that you, you have some kind of experience in the past you do well in, and then you get to do it again later at a higher strategic level, which brings me to your next job, which was being a principal advisor to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. Because of your prior work with TRICARE, now you are an advisor for TRICARE. And for the audience who might not know what that entailed, can you explain a little bit what your mission was and what you did? Absolutely. TRICARE is if we can't take care of our military hospitals and clinics around the globe, we will go out and contract it. In the United States, we had three large contractors, and their job was to go out to contract with civilian hospitals, clinics, diagnostic centers. So if we can't take care of the hospital, we have a network of providers 
that are downtown or near our camp basin station that took care of a lot of time my retirees, their family members and dependents of active duty, sometime active duties. Well, I was asked to come manage that because I had some experience in Europe. I really thought when I left uh, the 44, I was going to go run a medicine in school, but they had never had an army person to run track here. It was always Air Force or Navy. And Dr. Weekenwood was still the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. He came in the battlefield when I was there and said, hey, look, I thought he was coming for an update. He was really coming to tell me that, well, I say yes, because General Cowley said that the only guy I know can do this, has some experience, is uh, Elder Granger. And I know I had to tell him about going to Amen Center School, but he convinced me to do it. So you were just lucky that your wife wasn't there in Iraq, because then he would have gotten her to convince you to go take the TRICARE job. Yep. Well, she wouldn't mind going back to D.C. with family being there, but you're right. He probably would have done the same thing. But anyway, at that time, more than 40% of the health care was taking place in the civilian sector. So we were deploying a lot of active duty and all the specialties and subspecialty nurses and technicians to go support the war. So my job was to manage three large contractors, to including a large contract overseas, a large pharmacy program, retail and mail order, and as well as to start the autism demonstration program and several other small contracts but not insignificant. So it was a $22 billion business a year. And General Cowley said he wanted me to go. Dr. Winkler said, I want to militarize the TRICARE program. It's part of the military healthcare system. I want people to understand that it's a supplement to the military healthcare system as part of it. Our main focus is important, get stuff as quick as we can back into the military treatment facilities and not everything stay out there. So I had several challenges. Number one, I had to convince my flag medical colleagues that I'm not there to continue to push things out into the private sector, but also try to push as much as I can. If the kick build exists or it's not been deployed, then the other challenge I had was convincing civilian hospital system with the contractors and working with state medical society, the importance of taking care of their neighbors because we'd activate a lot of National Guard reserves in some of these places there in rural America, we didn't have a large TRICARE network, and the contractors had to go recruit. I did something that my political boss and I talked about it. at that time about S1 Casales. Let's just write a letter to all the state medical societies, very patriotic letter saying, we accept TRICARE because TRICARE pays basically the same rate as Medicare, and with a few exceptions. So I wrote letters to all the state medical societies asking when they accept TRICARE. By doing it, you could be taking care of your neighbors, in some case, your friends, in some case, your family. And then that increased the amount of providers accepting TRICARE. And I was supposed to be in that job for 18 months. I ended up staying three and a half years. We put on a large contract overseas. We rewarded the contracts while I was there. We combined retail pharmacy contract and mail order into one. And also, we started putting in real quality program. We're doing quality, but let's start looking at the quality disease management for chronic disease, being big on preventative services. And to be honest with you, when they got ready to look at what should be an Affordable Care Act, it came from DOD that there should be no co-pays deductible for preventative services. I couldn't talk about that time. Now I can, but it came out of the TRICARE program. We'd got permission, whether you were active duty, definitely not active duty, or a family member, retiree, or you had TRICARE, Prime, Selector, Standard, we got rid of all co-pays and deductibles for preventative services. We saw an uptake in preventative services. We looked at, people talk about healthcare disparities now. We looked at healthcare disparities in the TRICARE program. And we found that if you got good access, the outcomes, regardless of your background, race, and system, your culture, was the same because you had access for TRICARE, either in the military, civilian. So we, we did a lot of great things in that program. And I would tell you, I had to do it all over again. I went in with some hesitation, but it was the, uh, the highlight of combination of my career. I went trade for my career. So let's fast forward today. The military is going through some major transformations in how they take care of health care with the Defense Health Agency. I think the problem set is that you have some missions that you have to complete. You have to have a medically ready force, ready to go over there and be healthy enough to do what they need to do. You need to have a ready medical force that when they deploy the surgeons, the nurses, the docs, 
everybody can do what they do, but you also have to have a fiscally responsible healthcare system to take care of beneficiaries. And so the question I'd love to kind of get your take on it, you know, looking at it now, what is the role in the MTF right now? Do we need to have that a place to have the readiness or is readiness in the reserve component where you work at a, another busier hospital? How do we put all of those competing priorities together and make it make sense? I would say it's a combination of all the above. First of all, we need to decide what are going to be our readiness platforms. And I'll give you an example. Walter Reed, is it going to be San Antonio Medical Center? It's going to be a Wright-Patterson? It's going to be a San Diego Naval? Or say, is it going to be a Fort Hood or Portsmouth? It's going to be a launch tool? And then we have to decide for the other, those should be our readiness platforms or at a place where you have a large capability, have a family practice, whether it be a Fort Bragg or doing a combination. Maybe it has a family practice programs in part of Kaiser Permanente for you. Their family practice out of San Diego's. Most of the training take place in Kaiser Permanente from a family practice standpoint. So you need to have a hybrid, but also have a significant portion of that go-to-war medically ready force embedded in the reserves. And then continue what we call the military civilian training programs. But all we should all put our arms around our uniform service university health science. I personally think that all the training when you come down to graduate medication should be on the auspice of the uniform service university health science. We are one of the only training programs in all special and subspecialty. They affiliated with hospitals, they affiliated with local institutions. But it all should come up on the Uniform Surgery University of Health Science and have an office embedded in there of graduate education inside of our university. That should be our flag readiness platform. And with the training being put out to those locations I mentioned, Walter Reed, the San Diego Naval, Portsmouth, Wright Patterson, San, San Antonio, Fort Hood, and other places, whatever it might be, those should be our readiness platforms. And it should be a partnership between, under the Defense Health Agency, their TRICARE contractors, the Uniform Service University Health Science, the Medical Center, we're making sure we know that ongoing capability, each military treatment facility, our training platform, so that if, if we have the capability internal, then the military training platforms or hospitals should be are part of the TRICARE network. And they should be used as part of the TRICARE network. So if anything goes out, it goes comes in. If we have to deploy, we make sure we have the capability out into the local network to support or we bring people in from the reserve to supplement as we go out or vice versa. But in order to do that, you have to make sure we're physical responsible. And a lot of time we try to get to the right physical responsibility by cutting human bodies, not in terms of cutting by cutting slots from that standpoint. That'll get to there because personnel costs are expensive, but that might not be the world with all with readiness. Do we need our trauma centers that we have partnership with, whether it be UCLA, whether it be Baltimore Shop Trauma, whether it be any other location we have. We need those. We need to manage those from that standpoint. So I see you having a few stuff. By the way, you're having a surgeon general's in equity as part of this platform. Being responsible for that important partnership with the Defense Health Agency, the readiness platforms. When you're the commander of the, the 44th, you had brigade-level medical assets combat surgical hospitals. How did you know that they were ready to do what they were doing? Did you focus on individual readiness, collective readiness? All, all the above, because even though I had these combat support hospitals, most of the staff were embedded into, say, Womack or, or Fort Brack, or they're embedded in a set of Walter Reed. We made sure that we collected the basic readiness go-to-war skills on them from that standpoint. Now, it went as sophisticated as now because now by all our colleges in different places, college of surgeons and others, so you must do so many of this in order to maintain your skills. And a lot of that can be supplemented with simulation and training, uh, virtual reality training, which is very popular. I'm involved in a lot of that. I enjoy it. But it was more or less based on are they, are they have their soft skills. And now it should be more sophisticated. So I was looking at their soft skills. Are they coming to get their collective training? Uh, they're understanding how to, what's their role and responsibility. My main was concerned was they maintain their clinical skills. 
from that standpoint. So that should be part of it too. If your comments say you got to do so many of this, you need to make sure you do so many of that. And by the way, that might tell entail a little hybrid where we send you all for say four months to this location, TDY. We rotate you in and out of system. You're gonna spend so much time here, so much time here, and then come back to your main station. It can be done without a question. Yeah, there's a, a recent publication, a commentary that was uh, senior authored by Lieutenant General Ron Place about yes. surgical volume in military yes. medicine recently. And obviously, doing more of something makes you better at it, but it's not the end all. You can no. do something a thousand times wrong and, 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 and not be good at that. And so figuring out how to make sure that we have not only the judgment of when to do what we need to do, but we do what we need to do right. I think that's going to be the the secret sauce of the ready medical force of the future. And also, too, we need to continue to bring in enabling technology whereby you're participating, but from afar using simulated technology or you're participating remotely. That's enabling technology. It's almost like we do with our pilots. They've spent so much time in a simulator and you go back and do the hands-on. There's all those type of simulation training to help you maintain your skills. And there are some cases it help you maintain your skills better than actually doing it to get ready to do it. Right. I think if you if you went back into the past 100 years and told a pilot that we could stick you in a box and give you a more scary experience than you could have in a plane and challenge you more on the ground in a simulator, they probably would have right. laughed at you. That's exactly right. And I think right now, you know, the, the procedural skills... The, the surgeons and the proceduralists also say, hey, we're, there's no way in the world you can simulate me doing X, Y, and Z. But I think that's where the military has to say, why not? Why 100%. We can do it. And by the way, I, I see it done because I work with organizations where surgeons are going in, they're going into the lab, they simulate as part of their training. But even at, even at University of Colorado, a very strong part of the surgical training is simulation. You have to master it in the simulation from that standpoint before you actually do it. So you've been retired from the military for over 10 years and you've been very much dedicated to healthcare education and consulting. What would you say that your experience in military medicine prepared you for your post-military career? This is what I share to the civilian second. This is what I share with our military colleagues. Our training, our education and training and utilization of the job is very prescriptive see that a lot in the commercial sector. There are certain skills. First of all, we teach you to be good at your craft. Very good. Become certified too. And then we put you in professional development jobs that are very prescriptive or descriptive in the military. That has really prepared me for a month for this life. Being put in challenging jobs and still going to school. I was always going to some school getting some course. Military encouraged you to do that. Really prepared for my civilian job. I still do it today. I'm now certified in healthcare compliance. I'm certified in healthcare quality. I'm certified as as to be on a board. I'm a certified director. That's a culture we that the military brings to us when we go into the next sector of our life. And plus, to the various very few scenarios that I see Doug in the commercial sector that I've seen in the military. And there are things that I learned in the military. I mentioned in the commercial sector, it sounds brilliant. We've been doing the military for, in some cases, 40, 50 years, 100 plus years. We build up on your local time and standpoint. So that's what the military prepared. Leadership developed skills and taking some tough jobs in some tough places or doing good medicine sometime in bad and tough places. I feel very comfortable with my civilian colleagues. So let's say 100 years from now, somebody unearths this podcast and they want to know what did... Major General Retired Dr. Elder Granger do in his military medicine career? What would you want to be remembered for 100 years from now in the history books? I want to be remembered for doing all the good I can in all the ways I can and all the means I can for all the peoples I can as long as ever I can. Those are quotes of John Wesley, Methodist minister, who spoke out at the height of the slave trade as a minister and also I want to be remembered trying to leave a legacy, trying to develop the next generation of leaders so that whatever I've learned and developed doesn't die with me. It was passed on. They was able to build up on it. Because there are a lot of legends in the cemetery. Question, we study in our history books. What was their legacy? 
legacy is passed on through the hearts and minds of others that you take the time to coach, mentor, and train. And they build up on what you have coached, mentor, and train them so they can pass it on to the next generation. That's what I want to be remembered for. We've been speaking with retired Army Major General Dr. Elder Granger on Wardocs. Elder, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to our nation. And thank you too, Doug. I'm very proud of what you're doing and keep it going. And pass it on as part of your legacy too. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.